0: Welcome to the Minerals and Royalties Podcast, the home of CEOs and investors in the minerals and royalty space. Hey guys, this is your host Tim Powell from the Minerals and Royalties Council. I recently sat down with Stephen Clayburn, longtime oilfield service entrepreneur and host of the Black Gold Podcast. During the episode. Stephen walks through the current state of affairs for the OFS space, and how some of the trends he's seen can be leveraged in the minerals and royalties market. Let's jump into the episode and hear more of what Stephen has to say. Stephen, good afternoon. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks for taking the time to do this.
1: Hey, thanks for having me.
0: We're uh, This is this is my first in-person podcast, so I'm excited. We're here in Midland, Texas. The world's getting back to normal, thank God. Yeah, it, it should be fun. So, before we get into the discussion, I think it'll be interesting, you're bringing uh, an entrepreneurial background and skill set to the table uh, you've built and sold companies you've been on the service side uh, but you've also been involved in the deal side you've done minerals deals yourselves but I think the the punchline here is gonna be looking at the different parts of the sector and the trickle-down effect to minerals buyers trying to predict behavior right so I think Absolutely. that's what we'll we'll focus on but before we get into that, where'd you grow up where do you live now where you went to school how you got in the the oil patch let's take a walk down memory lane uh
1: so memory lane i I grew up in a small town uh called Perrin, texas which is between mineral wells and jacksboro it's a town of about 300 people so my graduating class was about 28 people and uh people have heard me say this before but my claim to fame is i graduated in the top 20 so um, i just leave (laughs) out that there was only 28 um so I went to college, uh, got a football scholarship out of our small town, went to college for a semester, decided, you know what, I'd, I'm going to go make some money. Um, packed my stuff, came home from Kansas, and, and went in the oil field about, I think, the next Monday. My dad was pretty upset um, that I came back from college. But uh, that's kind of kind of what I did. I guess all my buddies were making money, and I was tired of being a broke college student. So it's uh, just time to go to work. And I, I started my career in the Barnett Shell uh, two, 2002, 2003. Um, when it was just really starting to kick off. Worked there till about 2008 or 9 when it, when it kind of bust, and then we started coming out here to Midland and, and also going to Pennsylvania with a, a couple little companies we had started. But I live now, currently, I live in Alito. Uh, travel to Midland every week and have for the last 10 years. Um, we're actually talking about my wife finally decided a few weeks ago that we should just move to Midland because I'm out here all the time. And we've got uh, four small kids, so it makes it a little easier if I was home ever or not versus being gone most of the time.
0: Yeah, no, absolutely. You know, it's funny. So uh, the story of kind of, hey, I'm going to drop out of school. I'm going to start making money. So there's a guy called Glenn Johnson. He runs Blue Flame Minerals. So he's been in the space quite a bit. Uh, he got into Fayetteville, so before Barnett. Yep. And he was going to school in Florida. I can't remember if it was FSU or um, the U or whatever it was, but... He said he's reading these articles, and he's from Arkansas, so he's looking at his hometown, reading the newspapers. You know, parents is kind of rumblings and family gatherings, and he's like, "Oh my God! Like, what is this? Like, this is just crazy amounts of money like flowing into my hometown." So he had, uh, I mean, don't quote me on this, five ten grand saved in the bank. He went out, did his homework. He got he rolled up the minerals rights of this farm, and then created a bidding war between Chesapeake. And someone else and he flipped it for 850 grand
1: oh geez or
0: something along the lines of that dropped out of school he's been in the mineral space ever since so uh listen li- I, not to go down a tangent but i think college education is going that way right i mean i think with college debt and with covid a lot of schools are going to be in, in a tough way so it's going to be build a career get experience and and get some real-world education uh, diplomas, right?
1: I think you, you kind of are seeing that, not just in our space, but really all over, that corporations no longer are 100% dead set on that, that degree because they know that practical knowledge goes a lot a lot further. I know in my career it's held me back because I didn't have my degree. Um, but, I mean, I've learned a lot of things owning my own companies and, and working with other people and just trying to surround myself with people that were a lot smarter than I was. So no, you you hear those stories like that, and it's it's impressive. My story is not like that, so <laughs> you know, um, it's been a lot of uh, you know I've got a doctorate in the school of hard knocks, and I've left more money on the table with mistakes I've made in business and you know, uh, in the past that I wish I had back. But I, I wouldn't change I wouldn't change anything if you ask me. And it's funny, my dad used to say all the time. Uh, I remember having a conversation back in. It's probably 2013, 14, uh, Midland had put an article out in the newspaper about high school graduates graduating high school and making 85 to $100,000 a year straight out of high school. And my dad was like, I can't believe they pay those guys that much. And I'm like, well, you got to understand what they're going through. They don't get a salary of that. They're willing to go out and work 100-plus hours a week to make that money. Mm-hmm. And I remember when I started my career, I mean, my first day in the oil field, you know, we grew up around farms and ranches and, and hauling hay, and my first day, I started at six in the morning, was home by like four, and I'm like, this is a cake, man, this is awesome. I got a call at six o'clock that night and didn't come home for four days. And then normally averaged about 115 to 120 hours a week. Wow. So... Um,
0: and that's different than banking hours, by the way. Oh, oh, yes. Because yeah. that, that's like physical labor. Yes, so. yeah. Yeah, and you hear, because I, when I graduate, I want to go in the banking world, I I was an analyst for a little bit but you know you got a suit on you're kind of hiding behind the, the boardroom when you're out there that's that's real hours
1: yes yeah it's I mean back in those days I can't tell you how many th- times you know you're out for three or four days by the time you get home you're just you're covered in dirt and mud I mean you're you've been rained on if it's if it's cold outside you're freezing you're in the truck trying to get warm you've got water all over you I mean it's not a it's not a job where you go to an office and have you know a perfect 72-degree climate. It's You deal with all aspects of the weather, and it doesn't matter. You just had to get the job done.
0: So, I mean, we're going through a downturn right now. Give us some historical reference. So you leave school, you get into the old patch, you're starting to you know, bootstrap it a bit with jobs here and there, mm-hmm. figuring out your way. When is this? So we can match oil and gas cycles and overlay it and, and kind of figure out your journey from that lens?
1: So I kind of had jobs up until the first company we had was a little uh, cooling trailer company. And, and that was about 2010, 2011. Um, and what, what we were kind of playing on was when FRs had just come out in the wool field and guys were dropping like flies in the heat because the original FRs, they, they didn't breathe at all. Mm. So I mean, you've got guys, it's 110 degrees outside and, and you've got clothes on that don't let any air in or out um, so we we started building some cooling trailers we took them to South Texas in the Eagle Ford when it really kicked off
0: but what what was the phone call what was the idea like because I always you know you're starting an idea that I love those stories
1: so me and a buddy are sitting there in Weatherford one day talking about what we should get into at the time I was working for frac tech and um, I think we had seen a cooling trailer it's the first one we'd ever seen and it was it was one of those that we're, we're just a bunch of rednecks, right? We can weld and cut and do all that stuff. And um, we see this cooling trailer, he's like, man, we should, we should do that. And I'm like, well, I got some buddies that we can put them out with. So we literally go down to the big Tex trailer store. We buy a 16-foot trailer. <laughs> we weld up the sides. We put some uh, sheet metal on it, and we put a big – we go down to a Tractor Supply and, and buy a big swamp cooler to stick in the front with a little gas compressor. And that was our first trailer. I hauled it down to uh, South Texas, and we put it on a, a Lewis location down there. And what was crazy is my buddy, um, he said, man, if you can sell these, we can build them. I got the cash, don't worry about it. And I come back, I take it down there, it's down there for about a week, they wanted to try it out, loved it. And uh, they called me back and said, hey, we need, uh, we need 30 of these. And I'm like, oh, this is it, Like we are rolling. And so, man, I'm excited. I get back to his house. I'm like, dude, we got an order for 30. He's like, I I can't afford to build 30. I'm like, well, you you told me we were good. I said, how many can we build? He's like, man, I may be able to scratch enough to build one more. I'm like, one more, (laughs) one more, man. They're going to kick us off location. We ended up keeping that one out for a while. Uh, Somebody else ended up getting the business. Uh, they had a little more capital than we had getting going and that was really my first venture into owning my own business and in trying to figure out the the ups and downs and navigating of operating yeah. your own stuff
0: learning the limits of working capital
1: right? absolutely yeah. yeah money is very important when you own a business
0: so then uh, you've, you've kind of built and sold and run the course of a handful of companies so now this is 2010 2011 couple years in what's next
1: so um we got into a trucking company for a little bit my mother-in-law actually owned some trucks um, some sand trucks and she wanted to she couldn't handle them so we ended up partnering with her i started with some other guys and we we actually put our own sand hauling company together started building it up and and had rapid rapid growth with it Um, ended up selling part of my part of that company to those guys and me and uh, two of my very good friends, I grew up in the high school, both oil and gas guys. Um, we started uh, C&D Energy Services. And at the time we were going to go into water transfer and flow back, again, we didn't have millions of dollars to dump into it. But when we came out here to Midland, what we found in, in that time frame around 13 was the biggest problem in Midland was getting getting hands. Like crews would leave for 25 cents an hour, and they take four or five guys with them. So what we did is, is we said instead of trying to compete with 150 companies that are already here, let's give them something that they don't have. So we started importing guys from North Texas, um, crews, and, and we, were, we had about five or six pretty big companies that we would rig their jobs up, we would rig them down, we would pump them, but we didn't own any of the equipment. And I mean, we did really well with that business model. And then what we got really good at is, is with our customers and the relationships we built and the service businesses, a lot of the companies that we started or got involved in, or the service lines that we got into, was really just the need of our customers coming to me and saying, "Hey, look, we're getting, we're not getting a very good service, or we need somebody to do this. Will you take care of it?" And and I mean, we got into probably six or seven different service lines, Tim, that um, was just out of a phone call saying, "Hey, I need you to do this."
0: So let me ask you this: So you, you did this through the downturn, 14 to 16. Mm-hmm. How did, were you able to survive with that kind of niche, rifle shot, relationship driven
1: so know, we were, service offer? We were pretty blessed. We, we ran that company for about a year, right out a year, a little over a year. And we actually sold that company to a company out of Dallas in 15, uh, about March, April of 15. I stayed on till um, January about January, but I would say October, November of that year, we had bought a... Uh, well, a frac stack company that was in the Barnett that we took out, we brought out here, and also started a, um, a chemical company in the northeast, so Pennsylvania, West Virginia, Ohio. So at this point now we got operations in both places, and we did with CND also, and we I sol- ran those for about a year. Same thing, sold sold both of them, and then um, we've kind of just progressed into different things. We've been in we've been in sand hauling, we've been in uh, the drilling side as far as um, Building drilling fluids, a drilling fluids facility, frac stacks, BOPs, um, all kinds of stuff. So,
0: so let me ask you this: so now we're call it nine months into a downturn, that was the hand was forced with COVID, with mm-hmm. with the oil price war. How did the mom? I want you to speak on behalf of the mom and pop shop service companies, because I think that's kind of your your track record is building up these little. You know, you're servicing a, a niche part of the market. You've done well, you've built them, you've sold them, you've made money off of it. Is there a place for them in this market where everything's about consolidation, about scale? Is is the local customer service there's is that still move the needle enough for these companies? Or is it all about who can give me the cheapest cost at scale?
1: So we started seeing that probably around 15 or 16, the cheapest cost. So it got harder for the mom and pops to compete. It's funny because my wife and I had this conversation around the March, April, May-ish time frame because of the downturn and you know she came in the house one day and she's like okay you know what time it is and I'm like what what time is like two o'clock and she's like no it's it's time to start something because we kind of started things in downturns and kind of rode that wave of of upticks um, to try to get to a sale process and our process was we tried to hit 18 to 24 months or before I think that's a harder road to hoe now just because if you don't have the capital you know Turning back a little bit, with C&D, we started C&D with a credit card and $14,000 and built it into a multi-million dollar company. Um, it's very hard to do that today because there's not a whole lot of niche markets anymore like there were. The, little, the stuff that the big guys didn't want to get into. Mm-hmm. They've kind of taken more, over the last few years, a shotgun approach of, let's just do everything. And where, where we did well is being very, very good at what we did, which let us compete with the big guys. Right now, you're seeing a lot of consolidation in the service companies. You're seeing a lot of consolidation in the uh, operator space. A lot of those meetings are, how cheap can you get my prices? It's not really an apples-to-apples comparison. Um, It's just a lot harder market today than it was five, ten years ago. Yeah, for sure. I think it's harder for our business model also because the cycles seem to have have gotten tighter. You're not getting the five- or eight-year runs. You're getting two-year run, you're getting uh, maybe a two and a half year run before you're hitting downturns again. That's just, it's a tough market to be in. Do I think there's still a place for mom and pops? Without a doubt. Relationships, where your relationships are still great is not the massive companies, right? Not the pioneers or the exons of the world. It's the small, you know, mid sized operators, small operators that you can build those relationships and still and still build a pretty good company.
0: Hey guys, I wanted to take a quick break from the conversation to say thank you to Noble Royalties for sponsoring our Minerals and Royalties podcast. As a leader in the minerals and royalty space since 1997, Noble remains committed to creative solutions for others who may be rethinking their risk tolerance. In order to adjust to the current market cycle, Noble thinks it might be time to reset, rethink and redeploy capital differently. If you're interested in exploring ways to work with Noble, then please give Chase Morris a call at 972 788 5823 or email him at cmorrisnobleroyalties.com. At I also want to thank Enverus, a leading energy SaaS company that has software platforms designed to empower oil and gas companies through analytics and highly technical insights. Mineralsoft is Enverus's mineral management platform. That enables owners to capture missing revenue and maximize the value of their minerals portfolios. EnergyLink is Enverus's platform for automating joint venture and owner relations business processes. If you're interested in learning more about Enverus, MineralSoft, and EnergyLink, then please visit www.enverus.com or email businessdevelopment at Thanks. Now let's jump back into the episode. Yeah, and what's all this new again? I mean, you have... Uh Low cost operators, conventional tertiary fields, EOR, um, that there's plenty of them out here in Midland, there's plenty of them all over the country. And the likes of Vencer with Vital saying they're going to put a half a billion to work in conventional mature fields. And there's a number of stories like that. PE groups are starting to get these vehicles together. So that wave of companies, you know, of types of opportunities is going to come back. Yep. Now that the capital's not there to drill $10 million of well. And so you're saying the localized shops that can, you know, for that specific field, because they've worked that field for yep. three decades.
1: Absolutely. If, yeah. you, if you've got those relationships, you're going to be fine. Your prices may not be what they used to be as far as the service side goes, but you've got a relationship and you can still build a company off of that or maintain a company off of that. I've kind of seen the same things with the meetings I've had is I think you're over the next few years you're going to see a real big push into the conventional stuff again, versus the, you know, your horizontal plays, just because not everybody has $10 million or at this point six and a half million million to go drill a well. And your decline curves on your conventional are nowhere close to what they are on horizontal. So when you look at the long-term play, your your long-term play better is in conventional, where in your horizontal plays, it's, it's a big boys game for one. And I think a lot of it goes to, To the shareholders, like what can we show the shareholders on returns, or how big these wells are, you know, because you start getting into (laughs) reporting on horizontal wells, and you know that's that's a ten minute gap of how much that well flowed, and then we can put that out on a news release that it flowed five thousand barrels a day, because that's a calculation, but you, you get a lot of blowout in those wells, and as you know, I mean. What's your decline curve? 70, 80% in the first six, eight months a year?
0: Well, tying it back to minerals, uh, I can say for sure as if clients have come to us with PDP packages, and you go to these buyers, insurance LPs, family offices that want yield, and they're like, bring us some in the Barnett, bring us some mm-hmm. in the peons bring us some in the Gulf Coast. Like, man, it's Core Eagleford, it's Core Midland, but the decline curves, we have to discount it so much that our cost of capital actually isn't competitive. And that's been a bit of an eye-opener for me. It's really interesting. I mean, your ability to hedge with certainty or predict the the decline is is really important. And then, you know, with with these unconventional wells, it's how much are you choking them? You know, what is the real decline? And are you kind of playing with the life of the well and, and how it tapers out? One thing that's interesting, and I don't really have the math to support or the numbers to support it, but... A mineral strategy around conventional. Is there enough out there? Can you deploy enough money? Can you make enough money based on production numbers? But if, if there's going to be a trend that way, can you start to see line of with low-cost conventional operators? Does it make sense to buy production and these off-beaten basins that don't, don't really get a lot of love, so you don't have the competition, so you can maybe mm-hmm. buy them at a better multiple. It, yep. It'll be interesting to see where the mineral space goes from that perspective going forward for sure.
1: No, I think you bring up a good point, and I think it comes to returns, right? When, you, when you've got an investor group that's looking for insane returns in a, in a small amount of time, then conventional doesn't work. If you're looking for a small family office that's looking 20 years down the road of what is what are these wells return to us, then is the way to go, because they're slow and steady, but you can predict where they're going over time in long periods of time. I mean, you've still got wells here in in the Permian that were drilled in the, you know, the 40s, 50s that are producing every day and and have been. Um, So I think it really goes to the the capital strategy of what they're trying to get. Your big private equity guys, you know, a lot of them got burned in 15 and 16 when they they came out here and spent 50,000 bucks an acre and they thought we'll go drill a horizontal or two, prove it up and we'll sell it for a billion dollars. A few of them were able to do that, but the majority of them, within a year or a year and a half, they had to turn their strategy to, oh, we we actually have to figure out how to become an operator and actually operate this stuff because now we're stuck with it, and and our economics don't really work at 35 or 45 dollars oil because we way overpaid for for our acreage initially. So, I think kind of going back to your original question, do I think there's a long-term play with mineral buyers? In the conventional space, absolutely. Um, new technology that's coming online. That uh, I've got a friend of mine. They've got some unbelievable technology for uh, conventional that can release oil in the reservoir, and and you know they can recover up to 60% down there versus getting the 30% that we're used to now. So I mean that right there. When you take that comparison to drilling a horizontal and completing, your mathematics doesn't come very far off on your return. Just a little bit longer Well,
0: time. you know, on the back of that, too, this is getting back into your world and the service side. So I did a podcast with Enveris. They have a an ESG specialist, right, um, from the RS Energy side. And they're starting to study, you know, okay, if there's all these pressures from the markets on ESG, well, what's the scorecard? Like, how do you rate who's winning and losing? Mm-hmm. Because at this point, it's really all noise and everyone's losing. <laughs> because if you do better, like, you're still not getting – rewarded for it so they are trying to put the data together and create benchmarks that can then uh, investors they have a lot of institutional clients in the northeast you you know show them this data and say hey this is how you can rate companies don't abandon the industry and incentivize the ones that are doing the right things environmentally so um you know on that uh, i found really interesting you know obviously natural gas versus oil basins have lower ghg emissions and why is that because Natural gas is their product they sell, so they're not yeah. going to flare it. So flaring's bad, but then when you look at older basins, they, they call it pneumatic equipment. It was built a long time ago, it's older technology, yeah. so there's methane release valves. And the newer equipment, so the Hainesville, uh, Marcellus, Utica, doesn't have the same dynamics as a Barnett. And so if you now get money and attention going back in, reinvesting in equipment, which is going to be cheaper, relatively speaking, than an unconventional place, and you're lowering emissions, you're improving performance, the, the kind of capital you attract could be ESG capital. And so that's a whole new ballgame. And I know operators that have done it. They've raised money from ESG funds and their CO2 injection, you had negative carbon footprint. If all the fund cares about is the, the, the carbon footprint, and you could say, well, actually, we're putting it in the ground. It's negative than what we started. If they're not playing politics, it, it's hard to ignore that, right? And so money, I believe, will come into the mineral space indirectly through that, for sure.
1: I think you've, I think you've seen some of that. And I think you're going to, like you're saying, I agree with you. I think you're going to see a lot more of that. Because, of course, oil and gas is always at the forefront of politics, and this election was no different, right? Mm-hmm. And, and I think... If you're not in the industry and don't understand what's going on, it's, it's easy to be told something that's not 100% true. But I think your companies that are winning are these companies that are upgrading their stuff. They're upgrading their technology to become a, a more green and environmental company.
0: But I think they're doing it because it's more profitable. And as soon as the market recognizes that they're greener, they're going to get premiums.
1: Oh, I agree. That, I absolutely. don't think they're
0: necessarily getting that right now, whether it's public or whatever. And and what what is a premium? A premium could be just access to capital because getting access to capital is as strained as it is.
1: It, yeah, that's that's a great point. And like you you brought up a little bit in what you were saying just a minute ago is is transparency. There's no transparency in the oil business when it comes between operators, right? Everybody holds things close to the vest. You know, back when I started almost 18 years ago, you know, capital was readily available from the banks, and you know, you had a billion dollar drilling budget and you ran over that billion dollars in June, you just went out and they gave you another billion dollars, right? It, and then that 2015, that crash was kind of where that changed. And then you started seeing operators figure out how to bring in capital to keep these going because they they could no longer run on just, let's run down the bank and get more cash. They had to figure out how to actually operate their business on dollars and cents and, and losses and, and gains. And that was the first time you really saw that. And, and that, that affected the... The service business in a huge way because back when we started no one cared what it cost just get the do- job done right I need it done tomorrow charge me whatever you need to charge me when they had to actually operate and try to turn a profit I mean all that got it got crunched down man every penny counted from then on and we're always the service side is always the first one to take it right you're always the first one drug in and said hey look you know oil prices dropped a little bit today I need you to drop your service 30 percent. I mean, even knowing that you don't have 30% in it, especially now, percent margin, it's always, hey, can you give me 30%? And my response to that was, if I'm a, if I'm going to work for free or pay to work, then I might as well just go to the house. Mm-hmm. Like, I don't need a hobby. I'm trying to support my family and the other 100 families that I employ. So it's it's been a weird dynamic, and to watch it over the last, you know, 10 years on how things have changed.
0: So I'm curious. Just... I mean, I don't wanna go down a rabbit trail, but uh, at what point do you say, I'm gonna work for free a little bit because I want the business when the, when the market recovers? Because this is a relationship business. It, it doesn't go on you know, deaf ears when you you help someone out during a downturn, right? Oh, no, no. I mean, I'd like to think, it's not always the case, but I'd like to think when, when someone comes and they're in a tight spot with their board or whatever, and they say, hey, can you cut everything 20, 30 percent? It puts you in a bind, but you do it. They go through it and now prices get frothy again. They're in a good place. When when bidding comes back, they should look your direction. I, how do you how do you play that game? I mean, is it because like you said, I mean, maybe you just you got to there's power in saying no, right? And, and shrinking the, the client base and.
1: There is power in saying no. I mean, it it comes down to the relationship, but historically what has happened is your friends or your buddy comes to you or the the company you're doing a lot of work for, and they say, we need you to drop your price. And you say, you know what? I'll help you out. You've been good to me. I'll drop it. But historically when prices come back up.
0: You were smiling. You are like, that's not how it works, guy. I'm like, yeah, uh, (laughs) that's not
1: how it works. Um, Historically when prices go back up, no, they are not. They're not the first one at the door to say, hey, man, I remember, you know, I remember last year you helped me out, so let me give you a bump because I know you need it. Uh, how that normally works is as the market gets busier, you go find new clients that your margin is a little bit better. And once you have a handful of clients that essentially have replaced your bigger guy, you go back to them and say, hey, look, I know you need more equipment, you need more personnel. I'm good, I've got to get more because I'm, these guys, this is what all these other guys are paying me, and you're, you're 20% lower than they are. Um, you know that I'm losing money to do your work. Can you help me out? And they'll either say yes or, hey, there's a line out the door, guys, that'll do it, and they forget about you pretty quick. Um, so I've seen it on both sides. But like I tell people, you're not in the service side. Your big guys is not really where you make your money. Right, you, They look great on a balance sheet. It's awesome to say we work for Exxon or EOG or one of those. But your your best relationships, in my opinion, and the, the listeners can disagree, but my opinion, my best relationships were with the small guys that knew that I was going to charge them a fair price and I was going to do them an excellent job. If they called me at 2 o'clock in the morning and had an issue, they knew I'd pick up and I would either personally take care of it or one of my guys would be there to take care of it. And that's that's what I felt make a, made us successful is – We were on top of our service, and we charged a decent price. We were never the cheapest guy, but we were by far never the most expensive. So that's, to me, those were the great guys to work with. Because Mm -hmm. they were, to kind of go back to your original question, Tim, they were the guys that when things got a little better, they were easy to go to and say, hey, I helped you out. Can you help me out? And they were more off to it.
0: Yeah, because it's they're in control of the company. Absolutely. It's it's different. It's different. Um, So – let, let's dive back to minerals. So I think this is what's really cool. When you when I start to speak with minerals buyers, to see how they skin the cat, uh, lack of better words, is pretty interesting. Um, we, we did an episode with Josh Adler at Sourcewater. They've built all sorts of machine learning patents on satellite imagery to track frack ponds and well pads before they're reported.
1: Oh, that's awesome.
0: It's it, really wild. He did a, a white paper study with... Rice University and found that, um, I'm, I'm forgetting the numbers I don't want to misquote it, but it's a pretty significant amount of, of permits uh, were were filed, or well pads were, were built before permits were filed, and so wow, okay, that's a data edge um, you can track trucking activity you can track roads being built and so now you reverse engineer that back to road construction companies completion uh, companies and frack crews or I don't know how granular you want to get by tracking all this stuff. What I would be really curious to see is, like, you've now done, what was it, the first one is cooler trailers? Or yeah,
1: tra- uh, cooling trailers.
0: Cooling trailers. You've done sand uh, hauling. You've done chemical treatment. So you've, you, you're kind of jack-of-all-trades mm-hmm. in the service space. If I'm a minerals buyer, and I don't know if you want to focus on permitting or you want to just focus on minerals buying in general just for the oil patch right now, in today's climate... What are some things you think would be interesting to watch? or Some things, dynamics, you've seen the service space that you're either thinking of your next business or you see, okay, this space is different than it was or something that might be an indicator of development. I'm putting you on the spot here. But yeah, any... you,
1: you are for sure. <laughs> I think I think some indicators you can look at from a mineral side, if you want to just look at the service side, is, is your consolidations and kind of see who's scaling back and who's who's getting bigger now the the hard part about that is there's so many service companies out there that no one even knows about right what i call your true mom and pops that you have a couple customers small customers they may run three or four trucks a day um not your your big guys are running you know thousands of employees because those are normally the guys that are going to scale back the fastest but i think more to watch would be your consolidation of operators your consolidation of service companies and, and kind of seeing where they're pulling back to. I mean, as we know, we're still going through this election right now, mm-hmm. um, and we're all kind of up in arms on what's going to happen. You know, typically with, with the Democratic Party, the first thing to do is, is cut off BLM lands. Well, in the Permian Basin, that's a pretty big deal because of the Delaware and, and everything in New Mexico, eastern New Mexico. So if that's the case, if that happens, and, and they start regulating more heavily over there and start shutting stuff off, well, everything pushes back to the Permian. So for, for the mineral side, you're going to want to be pretty much on the Texas border back, you know, back east. Um, same Wait, thing. Which on I,
0: the, the, the other side of that theory, and I know minerals buyers who have said, OK, let me buy non-federal lands in New Mexico. Because if you're a Delaware, New Mexico player, well, dollars are going to go back to those lands, so it's a little bit of a bet right?
1: uh, absolutely and i think it's it goes back to your risk tolerance right and I, and I think that's another thing for mineral buyers to look at is is the operator that you're looking at that's operating on those those leases for those minerals do they have land just in the delaware or do they have land in the delaware the permian you know uh, south texas because what they're going to do is if it becomes harder to operate in one area and more economic because of less headaches than another then they're going to pull back investment on those those wells potentially or shut wells in because it's easier to operate you know dead set in the middle of the permeate
0: hey guys i wanted to take a quick break from the conversation to say thank you to noble royalties for sponsoring our minerals and royalties podcast as a leader in the minerals and royalty space since 1997 noble remains committed to creative solutions for others who may be rethinking their risk tolerance in order to adjust to the current market cycle, Noble thinks it might be time to reset, rethink, and redeploy capital differently. If you're interested in exploring ways to work with Noble, then please give Chase Morris a call at 972-788-5823 or email him at c.morris@nobleroyalties.com. at I also want to thank Enverus, a leading energy SaaS company that has software platforms designed to empower oil and gas companies through analytics and highly technical insights. MineralSoft is Enverus' mineral management platform that enables owners to capture missing revenue and maximize the value of their minerals portfolios. EnergyLink is Enverus' platform for automating joint venture and owner relations business processes. If you're interested in learning more about Enverus, MineralSoft, and EnergyLink, then please visit www.enverus.com or email businessdevelopment at enverus.com. Thanks. Now let's jump back into the episode. Let, let me throw you a different questions. So you're owning um, a small private service company out here. Mineral buyer comes in and says, "Hey, Stephen, you know, keep me up to speed on your jobs, and you know, we'll, we'll develop a formal partnership." I'm assuming this is all legal, right? And there's nothing, there's no insider information or anything. And you just say, "We'll go buy minerals ahead, and we'll carve out a piece for you." And so you're a small business owner, right? You're building up a service company. It's doing a couple million bucks or ten million bucks, whatever it is, and now you're building out a you know an override war chest. It's interesting, right? I mean, and, and so you can look at it as, hey, we just got an order for thirty uh, cooling trailers. Yep, that's a signal for something, and so I I think there's there's something there to to develop strategic relationships. And like you said, the service companies get beat the hardest on a downturn. So if you can get, I know offshore with seismic. A lot of times in downturns, seismic companies will back into working interests in offshore blocks with Exxon or whoever, some sort of model like that on the mineral side because knowledge is power. Insight into development is power as a mineral buyer.
1: No, you bring up a great point. Now I understand your question a little better. I think think that is truly something that mineral buyers should look at because the boots on the ground are going to be your service guys. Mm -hmm. Everything's so close to the vest with the operator, he's gonna be the guy that gets called and said, hey, we're moving to a new region, or we're pushing we're pushing north or south or wherever that may be, or we're trying to go into Colorado. Um, they kind of get that call first so they can get their stuff deployed to, to get the job done. And to the second part of what you were saying, what you've also seen a lot of, which is service companies partnering onshore with operators that don't have the capital, and maybe the, the frac company has the capital to help drill the well, well, they'll partner on that well and take an overrun to get the, the services done at a lot cheaper price. So uh, to your point, I think it would be, mineral buyers would be smart to start talking to the service guys.
0: So if you're going to create these synergies between minerals buyers and service companies what parts of the service sector do you think are most advantageous for a mineral buyer
1: so I'd probably look at your your initial services that are going to be there so your 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 dirt work companies you know because they're gonna be I mean they are gonna be the first ones there your survey companies they're gonna survey those pads before they ever start going in um, your roust about companies things like that um, what I would say is your initial services when you, you start a project so Dirt work's always initial. Survey's always initial. Your right-of-way guys are always initial. Um, And then you start getting into, you know, once you have the pad pushed, now you're looking at your rental companies. They're going to start renting, you know, right off the bat for drilling companies. So you just kind of progress from the time they find out where they're going. They're pushing a pad for something new or extending something that's out there all the way through the completion and production side.
0: I'm just going to say it because – I'm thinking it, and I know I'm not the only one. If you own a private service company and, again, you're not disclosing anything that's under NDA, if you say, hey, we're building 30 cooler trailers for this field, is there anything wrong against that?
1: No. No, I mean, as long as you don't have a disclosure with the company you're working for. and, And every once in a while, you'll get into not as much anymore because there's not a whole lot of undiscovered. When there was a lot of undiscovered areas, you got a lot into NDAs and, and confidentiality agreements because it was a lot of wildcatting go on, going on. But now, I mean, pretty much most of this stuff has been has been found, I would say. I, I know they just found some stuff in Alpine that's supposed to be the next big thing, you know, south of Midland. Um, but there's nothing illegal about saying, hey, I've got 30 cooling trailers going out to this area. You might want to take a look. So that's, that's not an issue.
0: Yeah, and then um – I know we talked about conventional and tertiary fields. I mean, you were on the chemical side. So I could see any anyone who has mature field EOR technologies getting a heads up on, you know, who's reentering stuff, right?
1: Yeah, and I think those fields, like I would mentioned earlier, my buddy that's got the technology company, I mean, what they figured out is a non-chemical way to release that oil, which is changing, you know, wettability down in your reservoir. I mean, they've truly studied the reservoirs. And I think once that technology starts to spread and word of mouth spreads on the technology, you're gonna see a lot of people start re-entering some of these old wells and and really get on back onto the water flood, you know, and, and recovering a lot more oil than they were recovering before. because um, they truly get it and understand what's going on down there and how much the the kind of water you're pumping down hole affects that well. And no one up until this point has really truly tried to understand that. So I think, you know, you're really going to see a big, a big push. You're already seeing a big push on the deal side with conventional. You've got a lot of guys that have a lot of money that want to spend in conventional assets versus your your it's hard horizontal. to transact though. It, it is There it are, is, there hard is trans- money
0: on the silence and there's guys who, whether they were big oil companies or whatever, and they go, "Man, I, I know that field from 25 years ago mm-hmm. in Louisiana or in the Central Basin platform, whatever it may be." still looking for that 15 20 million bucks that, I think it's just a bit as spread challenge um, but we're getting there it's I think uh, where you see the big funds that you know make headlines of like Venter with Vital probably scale is where the discounts might make a little more sense but the little tinier stuff it's tougher for sure
1: yeah I mean you've, you've kind of I mean tell me your thoughts because you're in this world better than I am but it seems like capital's been very skittish on oil and gas over the last i'd say really year and this year especially so i think you, it's harder to transact deals but i think you find the right group and there's still guys out there that are buying um, but you have to find those right deals and they, and what they've also got smarter at doing is they play within their box and if it doesn't check their box then they're not really interested in venturing out where before it was kind of a shotgun approach of let's try everything see what works You've really honed in on, our investors have really honed in on, this is what fits our model, and this is what we're going to do. And that's why you've seen a lot of the old old family offices go from an operating model to a non-op model because they want it out of the business as far as operating. They want to collect their checks every month and let somebody else deal with the headaches. And, and I get it. But it, it's funny to see how it all kind of revolves and, and the way the business runs year to year and, and how it, it works.
0: So a couple interesting trends. We speak with a lot of investors. We have a separate podcast channel called the Investor Series Podcast. And what I think is interesting is you have a lot of seasoned investment professionals, Apollo, KKRs of the world, leaving, starting up energy funds in generalist groups. So the old saying of best time to invest is when there's blood in the streets Mm -hmm. is 100% true except when some of the blood is like your mother and your father and your sister. <laughs> yeah. But if you're starting with a clean slate, uh, yeah. I'm, I'm using a cheeky analogy there, but when your fund-like performance is starting at ground zero, and then, but you're bringing in that expertise to invest at the bottom, becomes really interesting. But the existing funds, who have some of the carnage from the last downturn or two, it's difficult. So you don't see them as aggressive. But some of these newer ones, you see a lot of st- structured credit, structured uh, debt and equity, coming in um they are being selective i think tier one assets however you want to characterize that doesn't necessarily mean core of core unconventional just certain uh, return parameters have a ton of interest Mm -hmm. but the tier two tier three ones are almost illiquid it's not like oh there's a buyer out there somewhere at a certain discount it's just like why do i need extra inventory that i can't drill
1: absolutely yep
0: mark viviano who was with wellington for almost 20 years just joined Kimmeridge and Kimmeridge just did a big deal with Callen and so he's kind of leading their public equity strategy which is largely activism um, which can be controversial it's up to you to decide but he just did this episode I was listening to it um, coming out here to Midland this morning and he he basically said I mean a lot of the public equities are uninvestable they were spending over a hundred percent of their free cash flow and they're reinvesting it with getting returns that were, were less than their cost of capital. I mean, that doesn't make any sense. Like, if, yep. if you explain it that way, that's just losing, that's just burning money. And yep. we didn't, an, I did an episode with Adam Watrous, global head of Scotiabank for a long, long time, has a PE fund now in Calgary. And he said the last five years, Wall Street was just incinerating money. It wasn't just like poor performance, it was just like burning money alive. So I think, uh, there has, to just, there has to be some structural changes, some strategic changes for money to come back in. Getting back to making free cash flow, running a business. Yep. You know, back to guys with your roots, you know, smaller companies who it's, it's your money. You got to put food on the table. You got to yep. make payroll. And it's not this uh, you know, growth model with a, negative, with a capital gain attached to it. The other day, I was having lunch with a CEO. Runs a minerals company and an EMP company. I was like, listen, there's been a wave of consolidation recently. We've been talking about it for five, six years. I don't know which deal it was. It was Noble Chevron or WX Devon or whatever it is, but they're starting to drop now in the market yep. in multiple basins. And he's like, yeah, Tim, but when you put two drunk sailors against each other, it doesn't make them sober. No. And I thought that was a great thing. He's like, there has to be systematic and structural change in these companies because GNA cost uh, synergies, I'm making up a number, but 10%. But then that goes away after the first year. And, and so, Margaret Viano at Kimmer's is just like, there has to be different incentive structures. You have to change boards, change management teams. So, I, it's, it's tough. We'll, we'll see how it works out. But the other thing that was interesting, I, we did a, a CEO event last night in the Rockies. And a couple of companies that are big positions and they have dry powder and they can't really drill, but they have dry powder, so they're on the hunt. Mm-hmm. And I said, what, what's attractive right now? Scale is obviously the number one thing, but but why scale? Is it scale so you can drive down costs as an operator, scale so you can cut out the GNA? And they're like GNA not that attractive, but marketing synergies. So if you get access to infrastructure in a more strategic way, that's what you want as a bolt on right now. Yep, okay. That makes sense. And that was really interesting. And that was the first I kinda heard of that. But yeah, if you, can, if you can acquire some sort of asset, maybe midstream infrastructure is included in that or contracts are included yep. in that, that now gives you a, additional capacity in market so you don't have to flare, or you don't have to truck or whatever.
1: Yep, yep. And, and you've seen that really, the, the midstream play in the water space, right? So it's the operators are kind of, it sounds like they're kind of taking the same strategy that these big private equities did when they started backing the midstream projects, your cost to move water got a lot cheaper through a pipeline than it did over, the, you know, over the over the top of the ground or, or trucking. So, I can see now where operators would want to go after assets that already have the midstream piece in or a very readily available midstream piece close to operate because your cost goes down so significantly. I mean, water, gas, and oil, you know, all all three.
0: Yeah, I mean, you think there's anything there on the royalty side again, talking about these synergies on on the water side?
1: Oh, I think right now, absolutely, right? I mean, especially out here, people have got smart, landowners have got smart. I mean, it's harder to get right-of-ways in the Permian Basin than it's ever been. You know, everybody, if you're going across a landowner, they want a tariff on every gallon, you know, every barrel that's going through. It's got a little more expensive on disposing. I mean, reclamation's a big, big deal now, being able to reuse that water because that's kind of been the forefront for the last, you know, six, seven years is, is how do we stop using so much fresh water? But I think as far as royalties, investors in the water space, in my opinion, I think water is more valuable than oil is at this point. And I say that because it is a commodity, but it's you can't reuse that water, right? And once it comes off the ground and it's full of whatever it's full of, until we get technology that we can treat that water at a decent price to reuse, to either water with or irrigate with, whatever, I mean, you've got to find a place to go with it. You know, I read an article, I think it's been probably two years ago now, that they were saying that if drilling and fracking stop completely in the Permian Basin today, there's still 1,500 SWD short of what the daily production of water is coming out of these wells. So that's an issue, right? I mean, because typical wells out here, I mean, it can be anywhere from six to 15 barrels of water for every barrel of oil. And if you've got no place to go with that...
0: Uh, You know, I think something that's interesting I've done a lot in the water midstream space as well. Uh, I, I just see water midstream and royalties as two bright spots. Um, so I started digging in at the end of last year and we we held a 20 person water midstream CEO dinner at the end of February, right before the shit hit the fan. <laughs> uh, and it was, I mean, we had all the big players there. And then I did another one virtually for about 20 CEOs a couple weeks ago. So it's really interesting to see how that space has evolved and. Uh, they're creating these super systems right to more Mm -hmm. efficiently move the water around but at one of those meetings one of the CEOs was like man you know I wish I carved out some overrides on my SWDs in one of my last companies and I was like that's interesting right and again theoretically interesting I don't know if the scale is there to make money and the volumes and what the what it costs to get an override in an SWD well but Anyone listening out there, right? An idea no, to explore uh, for sure.
1: You, we're actually absolutely seeing that. We've been working on midstream and, and some SWD stuff over the last, I'd say, probably a year. And you're seeing a lot of overrides. Investors coming in, pulling overrides because, you know, they've pretty much shut off drilling new SWDs. All the new SWDs are in the Ellenberger, right? So mm-hmm. you're talking about a six, a six to seven million dollar project, but these wells are taking forty thousand barrels a day. So I mean, you, you figure an override on forty thousand barrels of water. Or just say twenty thousand barrels. You're talking about significant money, where, you know, royalties on oil. There's not many leases out here that are putting out twenty thousand barrels a day, right? So to me, that's why I got a lot bol- more bullish on the on the water side, because there is a need. There's always going to be a need, no matter what's happening on the drilling and completing side. You still have to get rid of water.
0: Yeah, it's that these water guys. They say, if 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 it gets really bad. They'll still be around because without water, the, the wheel on the, on the car doesn't turn. And, and so when the lights go out, they'll be the one flicking the switch, right? Yep. So even if it gets ugly and you, you know, your business shrinks and volumes go down, whatever, uh, it's integral. And I think it's huge tying back the ESG angle. Handling water effectively can help a company. And then if you're outsourcing it, then you, know, you can you take that liability off as an operator. And then you have a specialist who then uses yep. the right chemicals and the right procedures and takes trucks off the road and everything. So you're in the water, you're dabbling in the water space right now. What are you doing today? You know, company you're working on and, and you know, what do you see going forward? What excites you?
1: So uh, I'm working with a pipeline company now, a uh, buddy of mine. We're looking at some deals, different service companies. Um, we've worked in the water space, uh, working on some mineral deals and some production deals because we're seeing quite a few of those trying to find some buyers for those. I mean, dabbling in a little bit of everything. I've been very blessed in that I've been a deal guy for quite a few years now, so I get to see a lot of deals all the time. Guys are always like, oh, I should call Steven and see what he's got or what we if he can find us something, um, which has been a blessing. But um, I'm kind of a deal junkie. I like to look at everything just because I'm also hungry to learn. So if it's a space I don't know, I really want to dive in and understand it. And that's what we really did about a year ago in the water space. Is trying to understand why these big investments were coming into the midstream water, um, and, and it was a culmination of things from operators uh, to the, um, you know, the better returns on that versus oil investment. So to answer your question, all kinds of stuff. Okay. And not really sure what's next kind of looking around. I mean, we, we did get the podcast going. That's yeah, and been, that's how we got in touch. Yeah, so absolutely. why don't you
0: a little plug for that to so the Black Gold Podcast.
1: Yeah, so we started the Black Gold Podcast, and, and really the whole concept, I've got to give credit to my wife for starting it, um, was to have a conversation. Because you go to conferences and things like that, and you get to talk to a few people for a few minutes. But what I wanted is to bring to the industry – you know how that guy that owns that service company feels working for the operators he works for and in the struggles and the successes he's had plus interviewing the operator and understanding why that relationship with the service company is right like it's like if the industry sit down in a room and we all had a true conversation let's get real honest and talk about um, what's going on how we move forward how we become a better partnership versus always fighting and cutting each other's throats when times get tough and and so far it's been it's been a wild ride
0: yeah no it's fun right I mean uh, I started getting into the podcast world in in March I was listening to podcasts for a long time and there's no rules and there's no script and I don't mean that you know that we're doing crazy stuff it's just you sit down and it's just an authentic conversation and it's not okay we need to jump off in 29 minutes or take a commercial break you just you just talk and wherever it goes it goes and that's the fun part about it. And it's real authentic. And when you get into it, you forget it's being recorded. You forget it's on a podcast or radio or whatever, however you want to think about it. You're just having a conversation. Yep. And I don't think you get that kind of authenticity in a conference.
1: No, I'd agree with you. With the ones we've done, especially with some operators, they've been a, they've been two-hour podcasts, right? We're having to break them Rogan up. Rogan style. <laughs> yeah, I mean, like two-hour podcasts, I'm having to break it up in three different sections. Just because it's it's almost like going to the bar and sitting down and having a beer, and let's just have a conversation.
0: Which, honestly, from an entertainment standpoint, is people want that more anyways. Yep, absolutely. You don't want the PR and an HR spit out, which is, you know, approved, no, yeah. and you can read it off of the company presentation anyways, so...
1: No, it's, it's – yeah, that's that's the part I like. And I've had a couple of my guests ask me, like, can you send me a list of questions you want to ask? And I'm like, I'll send them to you. But we're not um, going to follow. But I'm, I'm telling you, it's probably not going to hit those questions. I mean, yeah. I'll hit a couple of them starting out because I'll be on track and then we'll see where it goes.
0: For sure. And I think today was an example. Absolutely. Of that. <laughs> absolutely. Well, listen, uh, this has been fun, Stephen. Um, where can people find the podcast? Or what what is kind of your public service announcement – you know, if they have minerals deals, they give you a call or yeah, know, what's So kind of the closing comments?
1: I'm on, uh, on LinkedIn, Stephen C. Claiborne on LinkedIn. And then uh, the Black Gold Podcast, Apple Podcast, everywhere, you go to listen anywhere. So, yeah, either one of those places they can reach out to me and get a hold and if they need anything or looking for deals or whatever.
0: Awesome. Well, listen, thanks for having me in here in Midlands. Good to meet you in person. And I hope to do more of these in hey, person. Hey, man, this thanks for having me on the podcast. No, for sure. It was fun and we'll, we'll be in touch. Perfect. Hey guys, thanks for listening to this episode of the podcast. I hope you enjoyed. The Minerals and Royalties Council represents the largest network of senior minerals and royalties-focused executives and investors in the world. Throughout the year, we leverage our relationships and industry knowledge to facilitate introductions on behalf of our royalties clients to help them place capital, buy and sell deals, and form new partnerships. If you're interested in learning more about how we can help your team, then please email me at tim.powell at energycouncil.com. Or visit our website at www.energycouncil.com forward slash minerals dash royalties dash council forward slash. Also, please don't forget to subscribe to the podcast and be sure to share these episodes with anyone in your network that you think would enjoy. Thanks and see you next time.